I can't leave now. I have to let it go. I have to get it out. I felt the wind. Yes, I heard him. I'll go where I wanna go. I'll be who I wanna be. Good afternoon, and welcome to the Live Poet Society, where we read aloud literature in real time and chat about it. I'm your host, Hattie Rensbury, and in honor of November being National Native American Heritage Month, today's episode will feature several contemporary poets from tribes throughout the United States, as well as music from indigenous artists. But first... Let's get into the releases on the New York Times November release list that I thought sounded interesting. First on the list is going to be Requiem for the Massacre by R.J. Young, who is an award-winning journalist from Oklahoma. And this particular book is about the massacre in Tulsa that, frankly, was sort of um, not quite as taught in history books for a long time as it probably should have been. Uh, So let's kind of go into this piece, and I'll read you the description that's used by book vendors, and you can decide for yourself. Requiem for the Massacre is a cultural excavation of Tulsa 100 years after one of the worst acts of domestic terrorism in U.S. history. Young focuses on unearthing the narrative surrounding previously all-black Greenwood District while challenging an apocryphal narrative that includes so-called Black Wall Street, Booker T. Washington, and Black exceptionalism. Young provides a first-hand account of the centennial events commemorating Tulsa's darkest day as the city attempts to reckon with its self-image, commercialization of its atrocity, and the aftermath of the massacre that shows how things have changed and how they have stayed woefully the same. I mean, it sounds compelling from my point of view. It may not be your type of book. This does seem like more of a biographical, historical piece. So if that's not something that you are prone towards reading, then perhaps the next option might suit you. The next one is The World We Make by N.K. Jemison. She is a three-time Hugo Award winner. Yes, that is as in Victor Hugo. Um, And this particular book is in the sci-fi and fantasy genre. And the way that we're going to talk about this is a little bit less about the individual book and more about the series that the third book, which was released this past month, is a part of. Because the concept sounds really interesting, and I think you should hear about it. Here's what the book vendors say. In Manhattan, a young grad student gets off the train and realizes he doesn't remember who he is, where he's from, or even his own name. But he can sense the beating heart of the city, see its history, and feel its power. In the Bronx, a Lenape gallery director discovers strange graffiti scattered throughout the city so beautiful and powerful, it's as if the paint is literally calling to her. In Brooklyn, a politician and mother find she can hear the songs of her city pulsing to the beat of her Louboutin heels. And they're not the only ones. Every great city has a soul. Some are ancient as myths, and others are as new and destructive as children. New York? She's got six. I am really excited to learn more about this. It is 
one of those sci-fi fantasy books that I think leans closer to low fantasy where it's closer to the world that we currently live in, which I think some people find a lot easier to digest in the world of sci-fi and fantasy. So if that sounds like something you're interested in, definitely check out the Great Cities series by N.K. Jameson. Jameson? Jameson. All right. Now let's get into our meaty part of the show. First of all, yesterday was the 158th anniversary of the Sand Creek Massacre, which is considered by some academics to be the most deadly day in Colorado's history. Members of the Arapaho and Cheyenne tribes were murdered at the behest of Colorado's governor at the time, John Evans. For me, growing up in the Rocky Mountains of the United States, surrounded by family who so love the Western cowboy aesthetic, I was simultaneously exposed to every little genuine, to very little of the genuine Native cultures, and a lot of content about or inspired by Native peoples. People spoke about tribes in the past tense, bragged about semi-fictional Indigenous ancestry, and overall chose to know very little about the sovereign nations that are still very much a part of our country. This is a great time to mention that this episode is broadcast and recorded on what is traditionally land belonging to the Ute Nations. If you would like to find out whose land you are living on, you can use native-land.ca to search any address. This method is not perfect or exact, but may provide a springboard for your personal research and support of local tribal groups. For this episode... I didn't want to just Google Native American poets. I promise it was problematic in many ways with a lot of motivational style quotes attributed to unnamed Native elders or ancient Native proverbs. That's just not authentic and not ethical to use when putting together shows like this that are meant to highlight people and their cultures and meant to highlight the art that people are doing. When society, societally, we use a phrase or a piece of knowledge and attribute it to an ambiguous source or a cultural monolith, it is entirely unhelpful. It fulfills a Western and distinctly colonialist fantasy of ancient knowledge without requiring those who reference it to give any credit to actual tribe members or make any additional effort towards learning about locally and nationally diverse tribal groups their communities, and their cultures in depth. Thusly, when creating this episode and prioritizing respect and individuality, I wanted to start with published Native poets who were analyzed by their peers, rather than the possibility of their being vetted by white academics with little to no cultural context. And with that, I started with Joy Harjo. Joy Harjo has been the Poet Laureate for three terms. Plenty of people know her name. She's very popular, and for good reason. She has an illustrious career. She's an accomplished poet and editor with several Native poetry anthologies under her belt as an editor. Her first one, titled When the Light of the World Was Subdued, Our Songs Came Through, includes poets from a variety of Native nations, some with roots in oral storytelling traditions, as well as contemporary Indigenous poets. Her second, Living Nations, Living Words, focuses solely upon contemporary poets and the power of their voices in the world we live in today. 
Harjo is the second poet laureate in history to be appointed for those three terms, by the way. And her vivid career in poetry and performance spans over four decades. Additionally, she's released seven albums in total now, some of spoken word poetry and others of music where she plays the saxophone or the flute. I was wonderfully reminded this by one of our staff members here. Thank you, Luke. Not to mention the 21 books that she has written or contributed to, including the ones I mentioned earlier, and several children's picture books. She's a member of the Muscogee Nation. Well, let me add a few other notes about her credentials and career that I found to be best phrased on the bio on her website. Just sit back and be impressed. Harjo is a chancellor of the Academy of American Poets, holds a Tulsa Artist Fellowship, directs Four Girls Becoming an Arts Mentorship Program for Young Muscogee Women, and is a founding board member and chair of the Native Arts and Cultures Foundation. She's recently been inducted into the American Academy of Arts and Letters, the American Philosophical Society, the National Native American Hall of Fame, and the National Women's Hall of Fame. She lives in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where she is the inaugural artist-in-residence of the Bob Dylan Center, and this year... Harjo was inducted into the Oklahoma Hall of Fame. Needless to say, she's someone who knows what she's talking about. And when I decided to start research for this piece, I wanted to start with someone I knew. And I knew Harjo's work. So I bought her anthology book. And her anthology book pretty much became this episode. Turns out it started as a larger project, the Living Nations Living Words Project with the Library of Congress. Now, when you're doing a minority group episode focused on having people tell their own stories and making sure that it's authentic, I can't tell you how valuable it is to have content where the poetry is recorded by the poets, sometimes in their native languages, available in the Library of Congress. And everything we mentioned today is available in the Library of Congress for you to access at any point in time. So, with all of that said, let's get started. The first one we're going to start with is Goods of Value by Lucy Tapahonso. Yeah, yeah. This is Lucy Tapahonso. I'll introduce myself in Diné or Navajo before reading the poem. She Lucy Tapahonso Nishia. Totuk Oshin Schledo, Totich Eatin Bushish Chain. Desh cheat me dashache, Dokinch cheat me dashanala. A good old net son Schle. The poem is titled Linago Nalgehi. Goods of value. Yes, those days are over when our childhoods were immersed in a linical connect. Stories and songs that were conveyed with delight, reverence, or sometimes tears. Connect is always bound with comfort. When the grown ups began talking, we paused our loud play and tussling and squeeze in around the table or settled on the floor nearby. Our visceral need and appreciation for stories 
took over as we absorbed the rhythm, pauses, rises, and falls in their voices. Something inside us urged us to remember, not to forget. We also knew the exact tone, that slight dip and tenor when we had to leave the room, because it is said that a child's ears and mind are vulnerable. They would say, We hold our children in much respect. Decades later, we share the same stories with our children and grandchildren, this time mixed with English. We sing the same songs. The children have learned to listen and to ascertain whether they could ask questions. In time, they too grasp the intent, the underlying resolve in the pauses, smiles, dips, and echoes of sod. The wisdom of the old words, long prayers, and timeless songs. The adults who surrounded us in childhood are gone now, and Nakai. They have left on their journey, but their honet and songs remain. The prayers, laughter, and songs that guided them into old age, sa remain with us. It was their sod, verbal properties, a form of goods that kept them steady. Sod strengthens our minds and bodies like a sislagai, the silver belt that encircles one's waist to keep our posture straight. They used to say, the holy ones will see us coming at a distance, adorned with stories and jewelry, and they will murmur, Ashanet she'awet, my beloved little ones. Thus, we honor them by wearing the jewelry they created, and we revere the world they put into place for us. The mountains, rivers, sky, plants, Stars, birds, and animals. They too have great value. Like our elders, our hope is that the young ones become the Nebeltailinigi persons of virtue. The man who helps when a stranger's car stalls. The one who offers the exact words of comfort when needed, gives a soft hug, or holds your hand in silence. The one who cooks for the grief-stricken when the hours become a blur and exhaustion hovers at the doorways. Those times when the sense of stew, just-baked bread, and coffee linger afterward. Or the person who turns an ordinary day into a jovial gathering, complete with Ilinago Hane and Chiyan Lakane, good stories and tasty dishes. Once again, 
the house fills with outbursts of delight as the door opens when relatives arrive. We trust that the young ones will offer a bed to relatives who would otherwise sleep curled against cement buildings or panhandle on street corners, distraught and thin, beset by chemical cravings our ancestors could not fathom. They are kin who have veered from their Elinago Hanek. For them, the stories are echoes that can't be named, like the resonating childhood voices that visit on the coldest nights. They pawn the family's hard goods, the alinegonalgehi, the valuables that were carried about as khanek, the sod at the spiral center of the tamped basket that was created to weave the past into our present and future. Yet we are grateful for the women who still wear long skirts and turquoise jewelry as if each day is sacred. They say, I will go forth into the day clothed with my shield. They were bestowed with hard goods at their first laugh dinner. Their parents, too, always wore a bracelet, necklace, earrings, or bolo tie. They remember the times of crisis when everyone held each other and prayed while clasping soft pouches of corn pollen. Now they carry their childhood offerings throughout the day as overhead the sun's many-colored horses gallop across the sky. That was Lucy Tapajonso. She is Dene and uh, lived lives in New Mexico and teaches there at the university. The next one we have for you is going to be um, The Book of the Missing, Murdered, and Indigenous by M.L. Smoker. Besides having a piece in here that was spoken either partially or entirely in an indigenous language, like Lucy's piece, I wanted to include a piece that focused upon the horrific experience that is happening with missing and murdered indigenous women and and children and um, I feel like this piece that was included in this anthology and was written by M.L. Smoker is um, a really uh, visceral piece so if you need some uh, space from that please feel free to take it but we're going to listen to it now M.L. Smoker, Fort Peck, Assiniboine, and Sioux. I am most rooted in my home community on the Manishoche in northeastern Montana, on the Canadian and North Dakota border. I am one of two co-poets laureate for the state of Montana. I am also an Indian education advocate who works around the country for equity and inclusion 
and better outcomes for our American Indian youth. The Book of the Missing, Murdered, and Indigenous, Chapter 1 For Natalie Smoker The winding cord of highways, unkempt gravel roads, and the trails of animals, a record of who and what has passed over, an agony of secrets. In the end, they have all borne witness, eyes like glass beads that can never blink. The dull light of motel neon shines ominously. An engine growls across the landscape. Brittle men who are splintered like glass thrown from a second-story window and we are the room they leave behind. They are pathetic husks, feeble in spirit. Fragments fall along fields and shallow ditches, in overlooked alleyways or underpasses, a cold, empty breeze rising from the debris, the first and last moment of her. It is rage that pulls her up from this place. She spews out the wretched and miserable as particles of dawn-lit soil illuminate her skin. Her hair is a two-edged sword. She stitches together the collective story of origin, her body a map, descended from the stars on the backs of animal sisters, carried to safety in a bird's beak. The Book of the Missing, Murdered, and Indigenous, Chapter 1, was written by M. L. Smoker and read in Helena, Montana, on July nineteenth, two 2020. This poem serves as an acknowledgment that we, primarily as Indigenous women, see, feel, and long for our stolen sisters, our family members who go missing on dark roads or from their homes and too many other terrible circumstances. We resist the violence and oppression that we face on a daily basis we will not be made invisible in this country anymore. We will fight, we will advocate, we will search, and we will never give up on those who are missing, who are lost, who have been taken from us. This poem was also inspired by Molly Murphy Adams, Oglala and Lakota, and her art piece entitled Epicenter and Impact. I also dedicate this poem to the memory of my niece, Natalie Smoker. Additional poems on this topic that I thought were also poignant and varied included a Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women Laws and Legacies Projects Poetry Section, uh, 
organized by American University. It's a smaller collection, but each poet tells the story and conveys their feelings on the matter clearly and with personal creativity. My personal favorite was Sonnet 1181 for the Murdered and, Inmi- and Missing Indigenous Women on Turtle Island by Tanaya Winder, and I highly recommend that you take a look at that piece, as well as her TEDx Albuquerque talk, because she has a wonderful um, way of speaking in general, but that piece is a really beautifully written piece. Let's close up this episode a little bit with some ways to support tribes in your area or throughout the country. You can donate to a verified Indigenous-run aid organization. There are plenty of resources, I promise. With a quick Google search, you will find some legitimate ones. You can purchase Indigenous art, jewelry, or clothing from Indigenous designers and artisans, or from Native art collectives, which are very commonly found online and can allow for a lot of different people from a lot of different places to sell their art um, without having to pay overhead brick-and-mortar costs. And you can research the tribes near you and respectfully attend any events they host that are open to the public. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the works of Tapahunso and Smoker. This has been the Live Poet Society on KDNK. Music for this episode includes work by Mikon Nikwe Ottawa and Beatrice Deer. Another great update on our show. We've been confirmed for a monthly slot. So, our next episode will be December 13th, and after that, you can catch us every third Tuesday, starting in 2023.